Hello everyone, this is our seventh sermon looking at the book of Exodus. Today we're in Exodus chapter 11 verse 1 through to verse 16 of chapter 13. And today we are remembering rescue. Now is the moment. They were Boris Johnson's words at his press conference this Tuesday as he urged the two million people who have not yet come forward for their vaccination to do so. Now is the moment. After all the clinical trials, all the medical research, all the billions of pounds invested around the world, now is the moment. After 4 million cases of the virus in the UK, 116,000 deaths, this is not the time to falter or doubt the severity of the situation. Rescue is now an option from this dreadful pandemic. Now is the moment to respond and take it up. Over the years, scientists have developed vaccines against a variety of diseases. As a result, diseases such as smallpox and polio have all but been eradicated. However, sadly, in some countries, some treatable diseases are starting to make a comeback. Take, for example, measles. Measles is one of the world's most contagious diseases. In the year 2000, it was officially declared as eliminated in the US. However, in the last few years, there have been dozens of outbreaks and thousands of cases. Why? Because vaccination rates in some communities have halved. In some places, it used to be 97%. Now they're at less than 50. The vaccination for measles is readily available. In most places, it's even free of charge. But individual members of the population have to choose to take it. Boris Johnson doesn't want the same thing to happen here. Now is the moment. Accept the rescue on offer. Save your life and further protect those around you. Trust the science. Believe the evidence. Take the vaccine. In our reading today, Israel found themselves in a similar situation. After centuries of suffering, their rescue was finally at hand. But in order for each individual to receive its benefit, they had to make a response. They had to paint blood on their door frames and follow the instruction to shelter inside. If they did, they'd be set free. If they didn't, death would enter the house. All Israel had to make a choice. All Israel had to take a step of faith. Of course, as Christians, we believe the same thing. The most virulent virus known to humanity is sin. It has infected every corner of society, every country in the world, every human that has ever lived. In Jesus, God provided the solution. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the all-sufficient sacrifice that we require. But in order for us to experience the benefits of his rescue, we have to make a choice. We have to respond with faith. Take up Christ and we will live forever. Turn him down and death awaits. Today we are exploring the tenth and last plague inflicted upon Egypt, the events of the Passover. But don't be fooled into thinking that this is all ancient history. The message we are going to hear could not be more relevant or more important to us and the world today. Now is the moment 
for us to respond as well. After 11 long chapters and 400 years of torment, finally Israel's rescue has arrived. Egypt had forced them into bondage, massacred their sons and attempted genocide upon them, but Israel had clung on. They cried out to their God in wailing lament and he'd heard their pleas. His heart had been moved with compassion and he'd personally pledged to act. The hold-up had not been God's doing. It had been due to the hardness of Pharaoh's heart and his ruthless desire to oppress God's people. But now enough was enough. After countless visits from Moses and Aaron requesting Pharaoh to be reasonable, after the vivid warning of the first nine plagues which we looked at last week, God would now take definitive action. He would rescue his people and nothing would be allowed to stop him. This then is the first thing for us to notice about the plague on the firstborn. It is nothing other than a work of God. Israel had discovered again and again that they could not save themselves. They were totally reliant on God's greater power. And that is exactly what is on display here. Listen to verse 4 of chapter 11. This is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son will die. Did you hear that? About midnight I will go through Egypt. I, the Lord, will personally act. Here then is an awesome truth that should make us all bow our heads. At the end of all things, there is a personal meeting with the Lord. Pharaoh had stubbornly resisted God for ages. He has refused every request to be kind, every opportunity to repent, and he has now offended God to the point of finality. Now Pharaoh and his people will meet God and experience his power first hand. Of course, again, as Christians, we believe the same thing. The Bible tells us that in the end, all human beings will meet with God and they better be ready for it. For God will know precisely how they have acted towards him. Pharaoh is about to discover that God is the truly sovereign one in the land. Everything is about to play out as God said it would. The same will be true for us. Now, because this final rescue of Israel is a personal act of God, we do discover some other things about God's character from reflecting upon it. First, this final plague, devastating as it is, must be seen as a work of justice. Back in Exodus 4, God had told Moses that he would eventually take Pharaoh's firstborn son because Pharaoh had abused Israel, whom the Lord saw as his firstborn son. Listen again to verses 22 and 23 of chapter 4. Say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Pharaoh had had fair warning, but he had arrogantly ignored it. Now God would see that justice was done. It would be firstborn for firstborn, a fair exchange. We also see God's justice displayed in the fact that Israel leaves the land with the gold and silver of their neighbours. For 430 years, Egypt had got rich on the back of Israel's slavery. 
Now it is as if they are getting the fruit of their labour returned to them. A fair payment, nothing more than they deserved. The second thing we see in this final plague is that it is a work of victory. Last week we saw how the nine plagues that preceded this one were targeted at Egypt's gods. Through each one, the Lord demonstrated that those gods were fake and he was the only one worthy of worship and obedience. Well, listen now to verse 12 of chapter 12, for the Lord says the same thing again. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. You see, there was one more Egyptian god to go. Osiris, the god of the dead. By demonstrating that it was the Lord who has the true power over life and death, that idol was emphatically deposed as well. The tenth plague is an announcement of the Lord's victory over all other pretenders, idols and powers. No one can stop him or his purposes. Third, the text leaves us in no doubt that this final plague was a work of redemption. That is why the Israelites had to redeem their firstborn sons as a continuing act of remembrance in the years to come. Redemption, as we thought a couple of weeks ago, is the act of buying back a slave. It was costly and done by the nearest family member. Through this final plague, God takes responsibility for his family and buys them back from their suffering. What was the cost, you may well ask? Well, it was twofold. First of all, the Egyptian firstborn had to die. God did not delight in killing those people. The Bible is clear that all humans are made in his image. God loves all that he has made. To have them die was costly to God. Also, the Bible makes clear that all animal life belongs to God as well. So provision of those lambs was also a cost at his expense. After the final plague, there was something dead in every house in the land, either a firstborn son or a lamb, and God paid the cost for it all. This was the price of redemption. Finally, this work was an act of new beginning. Rebirth, if you like. We can see this through the fact that God ordered a change in the Israelites' calendar. In verse 2 of chapter 12, God tells Moses, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. There are some events that are merely historical. There are others that are truly historic. To say something is historical is to say that it really happened. It literally took place. To say something is historic is to say that it changes history forevermore. The tenth plague was both historical and historic. It changed everything. From now on, Israel was set free to be God's people. They had been rescued from slavery and were now called to be God's family of worship and service. It would be through them that God would go on to bless the world, even eventually Egypt itself. Still to Jews today, the Passover is the most important event in their history. It tells them who they are, that they are loved by God and have a purpose in life. 
Now, why do I point all these things out? That within this act of rescue, we see a work of God, a work of justice, a work of victory, a work of redemption and a work of new beginning. It is because many of the New Testament writers use the Passover to help explain what Jesus did for us on the cross. Again and again in the New Testament, Jesus is described as the Passover lamb, the lamb that was slain. John even tells us in his gospel that Jesus died as the Passover lambs in Jerusalem were being killed at festival time. The cross then was God's rescue from the slavery that we found ourselves in. Not slavery to Egypt, but slavery to sin, evil and death. The cross was an act of God. Truly, we could not save ourselves. It was an act of justice where God died the death we deserved and gave us in turn his life. The cross was an act of victory where death, devil and hell were defeated. The cross was an act of redemption where Jesus, our closest relative, paid the price we owed. The cross tied to the resurrection was a new beginning that defined God's family and paved the way for our life of service and worship. In the rescue of Israel, we discover some of the keys for understanding how Christ rescued us. That's why it's important we get to grips with this story and reflect deeply upon it. But now I want to return to what my opening illustration was all about. The tenth plague was God's ultimate rescue of Israel. But in order for them to benefit, they had to make a personal response. If you remember from last week, as the nine preceding plagues took place, God segregated Israel from Egypt. When the flies infested Egypt, the land where Israel lived was spared. When the livestock died, Israel's cattle lived. When the hail poured down and the darkness engulfed, again Israel were protected. Each time Israel had been spared without any cooperative act or obedient step of their own. They were spared simply because God loved them. And at the time, God was trying to make a point to Pharaoh. This time, however, it is very different. God wants Israel to respond. He wants them to make a stand and to declare who they really are. He wants them to state in front of all Egypt that they are the people of the Lord. And they are to do this by painting blood on their door frames and sheltering inside, ready to make a swift escape. In other words, God wants to see their faith in action. He wants them to be fully public about who they trust in. All of Egypt were to know in which houses God's people lived. Now, it's important we remember that Israel had been on a journey of discovery themselves. Back in chapter 5, the last time we heard from them, they railed against Moses and complained at him for making their lives harder when he went to Pharaoh and Pharaoh responded by making the slavery even worse. Then when Aaron explained to them in chapter 6 what God was promising to do, we were told that the people did not listen to him because they were too discouraged by their suffering. Since that day, Israel too has seen God act in power. It was not just the Egyptians that God was trying to convince through the first nine plagues, it was his own people as well. Now having witnessed that awesome display, they were to be faced with a choice. 
Sometimes you hear people today say that faith is nothing more than a leap into the dark. This story tells us that actually it's the exact opposite. Faith is a step into the light. As Moses gives the instruction on how to celebrate the Passover, the people have a choice. They can either retreat into the darkness of their fears and anxieties. They can let their doubts and sufferings overwhelm them and so do nothing. Or they can step into the light. They can look at all the evidence God has shown them in the first nine plagues and choose to believe that he will do what he says in the tenth. Think about it. Israel are being asked to go public. If they paint their doors with blood and then shelter inside, but nothing happens that night, the next morning Egyptians will be knocking on the door ready for revenge. So those with doubts may be tempted to think, I'm not painting my door. Why would I want to cause more trouble for myself with Pharaoh and his slave drivers? But if they don't paint their doors and the plague happens as God says it will, they too will lose their firstborn. This is the decision Israel faced, a choice of life or death. But it was not a leap into the dark. Every word God had said had come true so far. The terror of the first nine plagues had proved that beyond all doubt. God had given all the evidence Israel needed for faith. Now the people needed to stand up and declare who they really were. What I find encouraging about this story is that when the Israelites do respond and declare to Egypt who they really are, they win some of them over. In verse 37 of chapter 12, it tells us that 600,000 men, plus their women and children, declared that they were God's people and thereby got to escape. But listen to what it says next, verse 38. Many other people went up with them. In other words, many Egyptians decided to abandon Pharaoh's regime and take up with the Lord when they saw the people's faith and the salvation that was won for them. A very similar thing is happening today. Why is it that celebrities like Michael Caine and Elton John are being wheeled out to convince people to get vaccinated? It's because ordinary people watch them and take note of their lives. If famous people that the population look up to declare that they have been vaccinated, others are likely to follow. That is why God wants his people not to hide their faith, but to be very public about it. Because then some of their watching family and friends, neighbours and colleagues will follow suit. Earlier I said that the imagery of the Passover was fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's through him that we're offered rescue today. Well, the same truth about faith applies. If we want to receive salvation, we must take a step of faith. We must choose to trust the Lord and declare that Jesus is our master. Still today, it's not a blind leap into the dark. We choose to follow Jesus because of all the evidence presented to us in the Bible through answered prayer and the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. Still today, coming to faith is a step into the light. But it is a step we are called to make publicly for all to see. That is why baptism is such an overtly physical and visible sign. And perhaps that is the way you need to respond to this passage on the Passover. Not by painting blood on the doorpost of your house, 
but by going through the waters of baptism so all can see that you are one of God's people too. So the Passover is the story of God's rescue, but it was a rescue that God's people needed to respond to. There is only one final thing I would like to briefly highlight before we finish. Those verses at the end that we read together from chapter 13 were all about how Israel were to remember this event through all the years ahead. They were to keep telling the story so it would never be forgotten, for this was the story that defined who they were. And that remembrance was to be wholehearted. It was to involve all the senses, the sight of the lamb on the table, the smell of the roasting meat, the taste of the bitter herbs, the touch of cleaning the whole house in the days running up to it, the hearing of the story told again and again. Every sense was to be employed. The remembering was also to involve the whole community. All households, all ages, all genders, all backgrounds were to take part. It was even to involve foreigners who, having heard about it, wanted to know more. Finally, it was to be repeated down to all the generations. It was to be passed on to sons and daughters, and from them on to grandsons and granddaughters and great-grandsons and great-granddaughters. It was never to be forgotten. It was by remembering this story retelling the events, representing it to the next generation that the people of God grew and held on to faith through difficult times. As a church, this is what we are to be committed to with the story of Jesus, our Passover lamb. It is no coincidence at all that Jesus did not leave us with an academic book of doctrine to remember him by. Rather, he left us with a meal. A simple meal of bread and wine that engages all the senses. A meal that we share as a whole community together and invite anyone who is interested to know more to take part in. We too are to pass the story of the cross and resurrection down through the generations, building faith and encouraging people to keep going through difficult times. As a church, We're called to be a people of remembrance, remembering the rescue God achieved for us on the cross and encouraging all who hear of it to make a public response of faith. Now is the moment. Let us give thanks to God for the salvation won by Jesus, our Passover lamb.